Hi, I'm your host, Thomas, data scientist, data engineer, and you're listening Let's Talk AI. On this podcast, we receive experts to talk about their experience, visions, challenges, with no fear to go into technical details. If you're looking to learn more about AI and related subjects, you're at the right place to make yourself comfortable and enjoy. If you like this episode, please give us a review on your favorite streaming platform, such as Spotify or Apple Podcast. You can also find more content on my LinkedIn newsletter. Welcome everyone in this new episode of Let's Talk AI. I'm super happy to be here today with Anastasia Prokaeva. Anastasia, how are you doing? Oh, awesome. Excited. <laughs> I'm super happy to have you on the show. Um, we have a lot to talk about. Um, uh, and by a lot, I mean uh, big data. I, I, I won't start listing everything that I want to discuss with you because uh, it will be first in the title and so on. But uh, amazing topics that I'm super curious uh, about. So thanks a lot for taking the time. Um, first, maybe for the people who might not know you yet, could you introduce yourself briefly? Yeah, sure. Um, so, hi everyone, I'm Anastasia, passionate about data and especially AI. I've been working in data science domain for the past eight years and also within the domain of uh, data analytics. For the past two years and a half, I work at Databricks as a specialist solution architect and I specialized on AI and special. Awesome. This is uh, very clear. Um, I always like to ask what are people working on right now? And by that, I don't mean necessarily your actual project, but what are you like most interested in actually? What are the things that you're really curious about and and like uh, like the, the right now for you? Uh, what are you interested in and what are you doing uh, these days? Probably what everyone is doing uh, generally. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> um, yeah, and actually regarding Gen AI, I'm very interested since the beginning of the year in actually fine-tuning full pre-training of models. So mm. um, yeah, I've been really working a lot on learning and actually understanding how better fine-tune and pre-train models mm. to actually improve the quality on the small size models. Hmm. I'll come back at you with uh, one question later, uh, which will be like, how do you go about uh, proof of concepts, like building things fast? How do you think about uh, uh, latest news of like Google GPT-4 and so on? And then like all the open source community, fine-tuning models, Mistral, uh, and uh, comparing Mistral and Llama and so on. I think that uh, there is a ton of value here. Um, so I would like to ask you maybe uh, if we could do a, a, a short retrospective, not necessarily short, but on... What are the main stage of your career since university? What you've been doing? Um, you have a very interesting uh, career path. So I believe that we can gain a lot of value from it. Can you share maybe? Yeah, um, sure. This no, yeah, I have to share it. So for everyone who never met me, originally I'm coming from the domain of physics and in particular theoretical physics, where I've been mainly working with a lot of formulas on my whiteboard. And I've been very passionate about it. I've started studying quantum physics. I was 17 or 18, I think, at the university. And I really loved it. Actually, my favorite topic was quantum chromodynamics at the time. But the professor didn't want to take me for a bachelor's degree. So I had to select something else. And it was um, thermonuclear physics for uh, the new, basically, this, you know, ether uh, build in Cadarache of France, where, you know, people try to get energy from um, the state of plasma, right? So... 
after that I finished it, you know, I've been 25, 21 years old and I actually been proposed to do a few internships. So mm-hmm. first of all, I won an internship in Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel. So basically it's like a big competition where like out of hundreds, they select an only sort of students. And that's where I've been working for three months for my internship. And I met a lot of cool people from Yale, Princeton, and, you know, we've been all around from world. And then the next internship was actually in France in one of the institute that's called Paris Un, so Paris, uh, Paris 11. Uh, it's like the split of uh, RC University. And I've also been doing actually statistical analytics on particle physics. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been very cool, but actually, you know, I felt that I wanted a bit broader topic. Uh, as mm-hmm. I've been mainly specializing in, in nuclear physics, you know, it's still kind of nuclear. I wanted to move forward. And actually, since high school, I've been really interested in climate change. So my first research project was actually when I was 13 years old at high school, I actually studied how different, let's say, things impacting our climate and how actually we can, you know, make things better, how we can impact it less with renewable energy. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I decided to pursue a second master's degree in Ecole Polytechnique in France, where actually I've been specializing in um, renewable energy and technology. Mm-hmm. So we studied technologies you know of different things for wave systems you know how get energy from oceans from rivers then of course classic one Uh, i've been mainly passionate of course about energy from water because as i'm coming from fluid dynamics it was something that passionate me a lot Mm -hmm. and this is where actually i decided that i want to pursue like a deeper career in research so Mm -hmm. i start working for uh in French, it's called uh, Commissaire d'Energie Atomique, so COA. Basically, it's one of the oldest institutes in France, opened by Charles de Gaulle and Marie Curie to actually work on nuclear energy. And then they start switching to, of course, bigger topics. And my mm-hmm. department was mainly working for em- environmental science. So our department been working for actually estimating and improving the quantification of sources and things mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. CO2 and different gases using numerical simulations and also real data. So real measured data on the Earth from ground stations, but also from satellite data. And the goal was to use the techniques that's called data assimilation to actually assimilate all of this data to improve the further forecast or the further estimate of the emissions. Mm-hmm. So I've been working there for a few years. It's been like, first of all, it was a big challenge for me because I have to be very, very frank, even though I work as a scientist and I did some data analytics, I caught, but I didn't caught that much, honestly, and I never really had to. And I really hated coding at some point of my life, actually. And this was the big projects that I started working. I had to code a lot of algorithms and improve models. My code was jungling between Fortran to C to Python to Bash. You know, I've been using everything to combine together. We've been running it on like, uh, actually our own servers that COA kind of built for my team. It was impressive. I had to learn so many things. And this is where I start, you know, meeting people, going to conferences, speaking to them. And I realized actually, you know, want to go a bit broader. Like I wanted to be more like in a private company, maybe consultants or something. So that's when I moved to like pure data science role, work for a small fintech in France. We've been doing also cool things, trying to incorporate all of this alternative data like GPS, satellites, to actually some uh, macroeconomical and statistical analytics to improve, you know, the way people actually play on the financial markets. And then that's how I start working as a data scientist. I think if today you ask me, what do I do? Mainly at Databricks, I work 
as an ML engineer. So I usually do end-to-end process. So I do also data engineering job partially, then I do ML. I don't really do like data science in terms of a discovery data, you know, but of course I understand algorithms and I can, you know, if I need to go deeper into it. And then of course I'm putting things into production. So yeah, that's kind of about my career path. <laughs> that's very impressive to be fair. Um, very impressive. And I feel that uh, one of the main things Uh, I mean, there are many things that we could uh, discuss about, but the fact that you went from um, a researcher profile to uh, private companies, uh, that's very interesting. Maybe you want to comment um, how this felt and how um, being more of an academical person um, due to your background and your previous experiences, how does it help you uh, in private companies And maybe how how working for private companies can help you being a better researcher. I don't know if there is also. Uh, yeah, no, uh, I think they are. Uh, yeah, that's I'm pretty a sure there is. Yeah, Do you have, yeah. I think you actually tackled something important. So when I left science, I left it for certain things that I couldn't find in science. Mm -hmm. But I also think it's because when I work in science, uh, when you're in scientific domain, often, sadly to say you are not growing as a personality, okay? Mm -hmm. People just see you as a brain. And I think something that I learned in a private company is actually how to grow my personality. And now if I would go back to science, I would definitely succeed more. Why? When we are scientists, you actually have to win a lot of money for your research. Research usually has to be paid by someone. So usually you apply for a lot of, uh, you know, competitions. You need to write a lot of papers and you need to express your ideas in a private manner, you know, mm -hmm. In not in a scientific manner. You need to tell people why is it important. This is something that's been missing, I think, from kind of research perspective. And if today I would move back, I'm sure I would actually enjoy it way more. First of all, so this one, right? Be more like a person, personality going, sorry, I go backwards from private to public, and then I would explain you how I went from public to private. Awesome. So the second topic that I think private actually teach you a lot and this is also something i think that i've been doing a lot when i was a researcher is to experiment not to be frightened right i think research helped me to actually analyze and really quickly understand ideas so i'm able to go through various i don't know research papers and just really uh, you know quickly grab some ideas and start implementing those but when i was a scientist i was always afraid oh i was not sure how to implement it because Often I never had constraint of times while, while you work for private, you always have constraint for times and you need to really help iterate. So mm -hmm. I think this is something that helped me also, if I would go back to research today is that not being afraid go iterate, you know, deliver on time and just try it like constant trial and try and trial. And at some point, mm -hmm. of course, it would make it back. So how was the transition from public and also like from research and what did help apart from basically uh, being able to, you know, research things. I think not giving up. This is something also that helps me a lot. When you're a research scientist, sometimes your theory may not work and you have to be, you know, you have to be ready to accept it at some point. And I think this is also something that helps me up to today is to be very frank with people and to say that sometimes the idea may not fit or maybe this is just not the fit, you know, and we need to move forward. We need to try something else. So at least for me, that was definitely something that I'm transitioning today. I think something that definitely was not enough for me when I was in research and you actually need to do it, especially when you go to conferences, is to do public speech. 
So public speech was very hard at the time. Actually for me, and I know every, no one will believe it, but when I was at the high school, I was refusing any public speech because I was so shy that I could not speak in front of anyone. So I was that terrified of speaking, even though I was playing in a theater, but playing in a theater and being in front of people speaking about some smart things, they were completely different for me. And so when I was in research, I think what I wish my research team would do more or in general when you're in research is that they would also help you to go do public speech, you know, to mm -hmm. go present your poster, go talk to some scientific people. And I had to really work hard. I was very shy going to ask some postdocs about what did they think about my ideas? You know, can they give me any recommendation? I had to write sometimes emails after conferences to ask people, hey, can you help me to understand? Because I had a question. It was very hard, actually. Like today, of course, I would not have those issues. Even though I still think it's a constant fight, honestly, <laughs> we always have this issue, you know, of picking a phone and calling someone because you're like, oh, I don't know if, if he will pick or, oh, what he will tell me or she and like, oh, I, maybe I will just postpone it, you know, for tomorrow. Um, so I think this is something that's been very hard and I really had to work a lot, especially when I moved to Databricks. So when I was in my previous company, I didn't have customer. So I was not kind of customer facing. We had customers, but it was not my role to be often facing them. Mm -hmm. And I talked to my colleagues and of course, to people that would face customers to explain them how this could be done. But yeah, at Databricks, if you want to transition from like pure research to some, let's say even consultancy job, right? Like if you want to be a consultant, especially in strategic consultancy, well, you will face people literally 24 seven. So you have to be ready. You know, you don't have to be afraid. You need to have sort of a stamina or at least pretend you have it so that people, you know, would not actually eat you. Because the thing is that when people fear, fear your, feel your fear, they, you know, may just overcome you. And when you're a scientist, I think we are usually all, you know, very nice and very chill and we just love science. You know, if, if any of you watched ever Big Bang Theory, you know, you need to think that scientists are all different, but still kind of same. You know, everyone loves their stuff. They live in their small bubble and they usually there. Some scientists, of course, are big broader, you know, that's why someone's working for UN, maybe for European Union. And that's the type of scientists that were their personality pushed them further. But usually when you are like a classic scientist and you work all your life there, as those as the methodology of improving your personality is not there, people usually stay more or less same, you know, so they don't go like beyond what they are. Hmm. That's amazing. There are a lot of insights here. Uh, and I really like, and it is very impressive also to work on those character traits we always speak about soft skills, soft skills, um, but... Um, but what the, are those soft skills, right? So yes, they like, are how do you define them? A lot of books. So yeah. again, this is also, I think, something that I would like to share with people that I've been actually learning while I've been at Databricks. So Databricks, we are all mainly customers facing. Of course, we have software engineering team, but I don't work in it. I work in what we call field department. So we are on a field and we are talking to people constantly. And so we have also mentorship programs that also help me a lot. And we've been sharing a lot of insights, different books, you know, how to understand, how to speak, how to jungle all of those situations. Mm. And it's a forever pass. But if you're pursuing career, you know, I can share with you, I've been interviewed once to enter McKinsey for a senior data scientist role. And, you know, in McKinsey, when you go to pass your interviews, you actually would have business cases. 
And you know what I did? I had no idea how to do business cases and it was very hard. But for the one month each night, I would go to this, you know, preparation business case platform that everyone goes and I would talk to random people that I never met in my life and I would do business cases with them. And it was hard at the beginning, but after one month, you know, I get better. And you know, at the end, I didn't pass. Like I failed the last, last, last round, which was super hard, but Afterwards, when I was continuing looking for a job, I get accepted to all roles I applied, including Databricks. So you see, mm. I didn't enter to McKinsey, but this business case solving actually helped me to understand how to explain people what I'm working on and actually like bring this value proposition even when I was looking for a job. Mm. That's something very interesting. Like those companies uh, having my having mine. McKinsey, BCG, and Bain were like three big, maybe you can add more, but like the way to prepare this kind of interview, it is very impressive how how it can enhance, or even I, can, I think I could speak like more generally, but preparing for like high standard interviews are like very powerful to just improve basic fundamental skills that will serve us in a daily basis. And that's uh, that's a very good point, and uh, and uh, that's awesome. Um, so so now you're at Databricks. You have this amazing background, which is filled with uh, different uh, kind of experiences. Um, you've worked a lot with data, <laughs> so I'd like to ask you about big data. Um, let's say if I'm a data scientist in a little startup, um, and I have to do some use cases. All right, I can use Python. Uh, uh, like even if my company goes bigger, I'll use uh, Spark and I, I can uh, I can scale that. But uh, like when you use satellite data or like this kind of data where you have terabytes of data, um, how do you go about yeah. doing analysis on data uh, when you have terabytes of data or whatever you call big data to, to, to start yeah, exactly. with? Exactly. So... This is actually a great question. And um, if folks, you never use Databricks or you never seen anything about Databricks, but you, I don't know, somehow work with satellite data, I just recommend you Googling. We have a, so Databricks has labs. It's people internally making projects basically, and they open source, um, well, under Databricks license. But still, I recommend you just go read a blog post around the lab project called Mosaic. So it's actually a geospatial project. And why I'm bringing it here. So... You may also go learn about some algorithms created by Uber that's called H3Grid. Hmm. And in reality, when we work with data, we don't have to just, you know, take the data through it and do a classic algorithm. That's not mm -hmm. going to work. You often, what I tell to people, you need to architect the algorithms and you need to think of it before actually executing it. So for satellite data, usually what you do, you don't work with pixel, like mm -hmm. unless it's a deep learning, but that's another story. If you want to analyze something, usually you work with aggregates. So aggregates are usually happening over grid systems. And then you usually aggregate all the time over certain domains and certain locations. So if you're able to collocate your data smart and to find back and basically filter on all of these collocations, that's where it's happening faster, you know? Mm. So in reality, what you do, for example, at Databricks, if you use, um, and I wish, you know, I would uh, do it that way in the past. I did it a bit differently, but today I think it's like insane like you gain insane amount of energy and uh, and speed. So overall, what we do is that we would try to create those grids 
that um well it's a mathematical layer let's say equidistant grid and we would try to collocate points from all of these grids together and then we would recreate child and parent grids okay they're all connected by the id and they equidistantly covering earth so whatever basically id the point falls to it always has some id and whenever you want to recompute it right once computed you always know the average so for example if you're working all the time with historical data, you're just calculating child, parents, and once it's done, you could just go and basically retrieve the data back. So when we work with big data, there is always two things, compute and storage. Because in mm -hmm. reality, when you compute, you don't actually put everything from storage to the memory. That's the way mm -hmm. Spark works, right? So mm -hmm. he reads it kind of partially with partitions, with portions of data and chunks to actually to memory, then treats them and then sends the results back. Mm -hmm. This is where... Sometimes your algorithm may not be fixed for it, by the way, and you just you will have to write a new one and that you need to also accept it or you may mix some algorithms with something else. And this is also, I think, a big challenge because today often when I meet people, they tell me, oh, how can I run this library on Spark? Well, you can't mm -hmm. because it doesn't exist. So right. or you write it yourself or you find a way how actually, you know, modify your data and try to distribute it according to some maybe groups or segments, you know, and I'm always telling people that sometimes keeping data, you know, vertically rather than horizontally makes more sense for you than actually doing what you do today. So, you know, I think it's very different mindset and it's also something I learned a lot when I joined Databricks. I had something of it in sort of like naturally coming to my head because before coming to Databricks, I, I already started using Spark and Dusk. That's mm -hmm. basically two kind of big competitors, but Dusk is sort of, I don't want to say dying, but it's not that popular today. Mm -hmm. And also didn't grow into that big ecosystem, but they work on similar ideas. You know, you have a schema and then the batch of data would come being analyzed and then processed because you would not analyze anyway, all of these terabytes at one time. It's usually never the use case. At least it's not coming usually. Mm -hmm. So the next approach is usually when you don't work with satellite data, but maybe just tabular data, do you mm -hmm. really need all the data? Like, do you even need it? <laughs> this is usually the question I ask people. Um, great example. I really love to give it for, for people. Of course, some data scientists may go and judge me, but you know, um, I think it also helps sort of for some people to project. So I've been working for a cybersecurity project and they actually had two terabyte of data. But the thing is that we wanted to well, detect something, you know, classification problem said. We didn't have labels for two terabytes of data. And of course we would never do it. So we actually mixed some open source labels with something that we could make. And I ended up of having, I don't know, 300,000 lines. So of course I train a model and, you know, like basic model, I don't know, XGBoost, you know, and uh, I tune it, et cetera. So, model is there and it's a scikit-learner XGBoost model and then I have two terabytes so you know you still need to apply it so again thanks to Spark and Delta you can just serialize everything from MLflow and just apply it to big data and of course not everything was great but the results were still like out like overperforming the statistical things they did with SQL before so this is also right think of what you will gain by improving at least for five percent or for two percent rather than not doing anything at all just because it doesn't fit doesn't mean that you need to give up. You can find a solution that improves a little bit. And then you kind of, you know, approach your target with the different steps. Because sometimes you cannot be A and go to Z with one jump. It's usually not never happening. And you need to go it step by step with everything. Work, life, you know. So that's <laughs> how I approach big data, step by step. 
<laughs> I like how you started by big data and ended up like generalizing an axiom for life. Um, awesome. Maybe if I push a little bit on this just to have uh, further information so I understand clearly how you approach and I believe that each points are uh, are valuable. Um, how about for say you want to do deep learning? So mm. deep learning um, and you... So sometimes you will, you'll be able to uh, remove, let's say, like you don't need all the data or you, you can take yeah, a no, sample. Yeah, no, deep learning, it's a bit different. So, okay, let's take two examples. You want to do some statistical average from satellite data and then you actually want to use some data to actually do deep learning, maybe to learn some patterns. So first of all, when you do statistical analytics, if you need to, I don't know, let's say you want to get average about France and then you want to get average about Italy, Spain, it's a pretty big chunk of data. It's not going to mm -hmm. be one image. It's usually going to be multiple. And if it's over the year, then mm -hmm. you would get actually like really like gigabytes of data inside memory. Mm -hmm. While for deep learning, usually you don't actually through all data at once. You would actually through them in batch. And that's why there is data loaders for different algorithms that actually help you to just grab the chunk of data and like naturally actually distribute them. So today in deep learning, when we do training, we usually use distributed data parallel. So it's mm -hmm. basically when you not copying data all around for different workers, but actually you would send different chunks of this data and then train. And today, even going further, it's if it's not deep learning, but let's say Gen AI. Gen AI are very big models versus deep learning when they're small, but a lot of data. And Gen AI, it's usually a huge model, a bit of data. And then for Gen AI, you would go FSDP when you actually can split the weights, the model, you know, itself, the optimizer, and then they would actually kind of average all of this. So just two different approaches. So for deep learning, usually I recommend first, you know, you scale up as much GPU you can fit to one machine. Uh, usually you can go today up to eight. And again, better instance you're using because something that I think I have a lot of fights with like all deep learning folks that did it on-prem, you know, we all can buy GPU today. Like it's not that expensive. It's still expensive, but in my previous company, we had GPU and a lot of people just like say, Hey, I buy a GPU for 20 K and I have it right. Your Mac has it. So the thing is that GPUs are different, you know, and if you are training anything, you probably would use different, what we call precision. And all GPUs don't have good precision. They just bad. <laughs> so this is first. So don't economize your money. Use a nice GPU because better GPU brings you efforts. You know, people actually working on making those GPUs more and more powerful by writing better optimizers for them, like NVIDIA and AMD. So don't hesitate to go to A10, A100, or even, you know, like H100 today. We're getting access. Of course, then there is TPU, but it's only when you're using Google. So that's where we have more issues with it. But let's focus on the GPU size. <laughs> so once you scaled up and you don't have bigger GPU and it's still not enough, of course, then you would start scaling horizontally, right? And then usually I never recommend people to go horizontally if they have bigger cluster or bigger instance. You know, if you can get a bigger instance with four GPU and it fits, if it's go too slow, then okay, yeah, we could of course go and you know accelerate it, add more nodes in a distributed fashion and use those DDP algorithms to actually make it. And again, Spark works there. So Databricks, we're using Spark to distribute it. So, you know, there are a lot of algorithms and I think what is the most complicated and where you need to pay attention when you're doing deep learning versus just calculating statistics for satellite data is 
how systems are connected, meaning your network between your instances, you know, if you have more than one, how are they connected? Are you using like uh, actually the machines that are connected better? And this is actually on your cloud provider. So if it's your own instance, I doubt they are properly connected and you may not even have latest CUDA library. So that's where, again, I'm like very big opt for cloud providers, especially when it's coming for a GPU, just because I, I've been there and I've been setting my own GPU libraries and I've been struggling with making all the time Docker containers and trying to connect those two GPUs together because they would never distribute me anything. Mm -hmm. So I think today companies that offering you to like have things that are set and you don't need to reinstall anything, that's definitely helps a lot. So yeah. Awesome. There are many things that I really like about what you just said and also uh, earlier in, in the episode. So you're really able to take any project from no data to scaling up resources and having the ecosystems ready to receive and then work on the use cases and the problem and add value and deliver this value, communicating it uh, in an efficient way. And this is very impressive because I believe that uh, we are still seeing like some people who are very focused in data engineer, other in data science. And in those two fields, they are already like whole world of people who are like specialized in things and so on and that's uh, very interesting how you're capable of uh, just moving um so first question is um like how do you see so i, I like there is this uh, paper paper or articles like the ai engineer uh, there is also ml engineer which like go to production how do you see yourself in the field and how do you see the roles uh, that will shape the future of um, data AI? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question because it's actually moving very quick. You know, now there Too is fast. like the prompt <laughs> engineers and <Yeah. laughs> it didn't exist like just, uh, just before. So I think it's also more about what people want to do. You know, I think we are really lacking very good data scientists that are really know how to work with data, you know, like looking for patterns, for features. But then I don't think we need that many, you know, we just need a very good one. But then once it's found, you know, they, they still need to do something usually from time to time. So I think we definitely requiring to have more ML engineers in general, people that can do from end to end. It's very important. And we also requiring to have people that really know how to productionize, not just dockinarizing because, mm -hmm. you know, dockinarizing it's one, but when you want to scale, I'm not sure that Docker scale, like, well, I'm not sure. It's not scales that straightforward, you know, and people, of course, then move into Kubernetes, but it yeah. still may not scale and you might not be proficient with it. So mm -hmm. I think it's, so I could, I think looking at myself, I probably could do anything, okay? Mm -hmm. But the quality of it may not be as good as professional people would do it that are specialized mm -hmm. in it. I think it's important if you want to be a data scientist to still know data engineering as, and if you want to be ML engineer, you're obliged to know data engineering. Okay. So it's not like I may know data engineering. You cannot do any productionizing if you don't know data engineering, at least mm -hmm. like a good background of data engineering. Mm -hmm. You may not be like super skilled in Scala or, you know, like, I don't know, maybe Kafka or stuff like this, but you still need to know components and to understand the streaming batch in real time inference, you know, because mm -hmm. well, if you don't, then that's already an issue, right? How to productionize it. Regarding the future, I think it really will depend, you know, if, if the community today will accept that AI, like Gen AI will be shaped further 
and they will go back to this era when we had deep learning researchers in companies and they will mm -hmm. need people to train those models for them. Then, of course, we will gain better, more like research positions. But I really think we require still a lot of data engineers. You know, sadly to say, when I was looking for a job, a lot of data science roles and data engineering roles, they were just analytic roles. Like you just do some SQL tables. And honestly, I'm horrible in SQL. And I think people that know SQL, they are great. Like I use PySpark all the time. And when I can do SQL, I do SQL. When I can avoid SQL, I'm like, no SQL. <laughs> Please, no SQL. I don't know, never had love for SQL uh, because it was not my primary language. And of course I use it, but you know, I'm just not a fan. Some people love it. But the issue is that sometimes when you look for a job, your company will not distinguish. They just want someone to go to look at the data and do something for them. Mm -hmm. So I think what I see that is missing today is that when people do data engineering, they have no idea about ML, like at all. Whenever there is a board AI, they're like, oh, that's not mine. <laughs> hey, data scientist, go deal with it. This is an issue for me. I think people need to have broader spectrum. In general, you need to be more versatile. So you don't have to say, oh, I don't need to know cloud because I'm a data scientist. Who cares about VPC networks and like what is the router, you know, all of these things. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to be like super special, but to knowing basics and understanding how the infrastructure works mm -hmm. definitely will help you to go forward, you know, of your mm -hmm. career. If you go being a research scientist, there are a lot of great research scientists that do very great research, but then you need to focus on pure algorithm, algorithmic skills on testing, because you know, when you're a research, researcher in a big company or in a serious company, researchers still do ML engineering. They still need to test their code. A lot of folks that work at Databricks for software engineers, they are ex-researchers and they actually know, start making ML flow. And then they are Databricks software engineers, but they are ex-researchers. So. I think you cannot be only one. I don't believe into it, honestly. I don't think you can be only one. It, your job, whatever you do, always touch in some other domains. Of course, you don't have to be like expert in all of them, but you need to be like just broader. You need to have interest and you need to just cover them. So I think the future will go that we may stop even calling this data scientist, ML engineer, and people may just have, you know, like what it was before data architect, research scientist and then you know devops and that's three jobs and then each company will call them the way they want just read the description talk to the company understand what they want i give you a great example i remember someone was talking to me they were looking for i don't remember if it was data platform architect or data engineer probably was written data engineer and th but then they start talking to me oh yeah we want to migrate to cloud from prem or we have those issues we don't know how to how to support so many systems. And I asked them, so you're looking for someone who can deploy it with Terraform, right? And they were like, what is Terraform? I was I... like, um, <laughs> okay, yeah, you know, infrastructure is a quite like, oh no, tell us more. And after we stopped talking, they were like, oh, so do you want to come work for us? He seems to know so much. I was like, well, no, because I'm not an expert in it. I just know it because, well, I'm using it. I'm like a user, you know, but I'm not an expert, but so this is the gap, right, between being a user and being an expert. I think mm -hmm. I'm a user of a lot of things. I definitely expert in what I need and maybe not, but you have to understand that you need to know more in general, right? Because mm. this is the way today. So mm. and by doing so, this is how you this is how you define in what you want to be an expert, I guess. Like by being a user of many things and you know what you want to really study yeah. deeper. Uh awesome. 
Very interesting. Uh, I'd like to go on Gen AI uh, mm -hmm. because I, I've heard it's uh, it's uh, some things that people do lately. Uh, that, by the way, when when I hear AI lately, I try to use this word um, cautiously, um, just because I feel like we associate too much of the hype of Gen AI with what's AI. Yeah. And uh, I like uh, this is not me, but I like um, people who talk about good old AI, where you just do uh, neural networks or just just basic fundamental things. Um, so coming back to Gen AI, how do you see, uh, maybe you can share uh, about your experience with it, um, how you uh, got introduced to it, and also like what is the value from your perspective? Like I said in the beginning, um, I have a feeling that people go to GPT 3.5 or 4 to like just test things fast. And afterwards comes the, I'm going to fight in the model. I'm going to use open source. I'm going to use Llama, Mistral, uh, based on the specific things that um, I want to, uh, to, to, to program or to, or, to, or to do. So how do you see Gen AI lately? And, and do you have yeah. insights for us? So I will start with a very funny story, how I actually kind of used my first you know, LM model, large mm -hmm. uh, model. Yeah. So it was in 2020, I think. I worked still in my previous company. And we had an intern that today actually work at Google. So, well, I, I hope his internship went well. So, um, and he he was working on a project trying to analyze Twitter's sentiment from Twitter's. Mm. And I remember he was like, hey, I found this model called BERT. And so he yeah. made us a presentation <laughs> about it. And I was looking at it, you know, I'm like, still was transitioning from science. I didn't understand anything he tried to explain. I was like, I don't believe it can work. I, I like, I look at it at the way he explained it. I was like, hundred percent, it's fake. He faked it somewhere, but I didn't have time to go deeper into it. And I was like, definitely fake. You know, I look at this transformer, and I was like, what the hell is this doing? Like, I don't believe it. <laughs> so that was the way I met Bird Model in 2019. Um, so coming back, actually, how I went back. And how I actually deep dive into transformers and how did it started. So I think it was around a year and a half before actually GPT kind of, um, you know, rock start. Hugging Face was going back. So we've been seeing more and more applications from our customers. Again, as I'm attached a lot to customers, usually I'm following trends. Of course, I'm checking LinkedIn, you know, blog, uh, blog post, podcasts. So people were going back, talking about this cool stuff called Hugging Face and like these transformers. And I was like, oh yeah, it was that model. I remember, Bird. And so I went into, and I was like, hell, I don't really understand how it works. So, you know, let's deep dive. So overall, I purchased this book. It was in preview from Hugging Face called Natural Language, Natural Language Processing with Transformers. And then I also went and looked for some blog posts that people were doing. So I did the hard way, you know, I caught it transformer myself because I really mm. wanted to understand it. I went through all mass and really understand how all of this works because that was my goal. I really mm. wanted to prove myself and I understand everything. And so then my colleagues started asking like, Hey, I heard there's this cool stuff, hugging face. I don't know. Do you know about it? So what I did is that actually we did workshops. So I read the book and I actually explained to people, first of all, basics of deep learning, like very quick, if they don't know at all, you know, like, because you still need to know something to understand. Then explain them the basic of transformers, what is the encoder, the decoder, and basically how those model works. 
And this is when we actually started working with customers. So we didn't use, like we really seen it before GPT. Like, so when people tell me, oh, everything started just because of chat GPT, it's accelerated it, meaning it brought faster to other companies, but other companies knew about it. You know, BERT, like FinBERT was used in finance for like since 2019 or mm -hmm. 20 when they published the debates. And I remember everyone were like secretly saying, oh, do you have these weights? Oh, send me these weights because I need it. I want to fine tune my own model. Today, fine tuning bird sounds like, you know, oh, fine tuning bird that like, I don't know, I just need labels and it takes me like an hour. So this is how actually I started. Uh, what is my point of view is that, as you said today, I think everyone just doing it for hype. They don't try to understand how this can really change things in their company and this can actually change things in their company i think that gpt is a great model for doing what it does meaning generating things but but you know there's but gpt doesn't have like he doesn't have knowledge it's not it's not intelligent okay let's be very frank and some people are asking me oh it does math so bad. Like, why it does math so bad? Well, because it doesn't have brain. It's It just has some logic. You know, it's a probability, generating probability of a sequence. Mm -hmm. So if he didn't learn it, there is not really a lot of chance he would kind of generate a good probability of it. So you or teach him yourself and then he kind of mimics you. So for me, we actually have seen a lot of great applications, not using GPT, but just using classic you know, like language models, not like large language models, like uh, X large language models for sentiment, for zero shot in, uh, extraction, for entity recognition. Most of the time when you want to combine them all, right, you want to fine tune them. And we saw great results. I literally had customers migrating from cognitive services where they had to pay to make labels, fine tune their own models, economizing hello money and owning it and going faster to production because, well, now they own it and results are better and business was happy and they even saved money. So, you know, when you tell to business, we make it better and we save money just by spending two weeks making labels, most of people accept it. <laughs> so what are will be the future? I'm sure now companies finally realizing they are a moment. I'm not sure they really realizing where is the moment. So mm -hmm. it's also for, people like us, you know, who works with those people to bring new use cases, to build more examples at Databricks. We call it solution accelerators that we build in and show into customers and our partners to explore more. I really think we're just in the beginning because, you know, I recently read, they finally, finally start using transformers to improve meteorological forecasting. And, you know, transformers been there since 2017. Hey, 2023, we are six years delayed. So I really looking forward, you know, this new model from uh, company Mistral that are French, again, very super excited folks from Google, Meta, everywhere left, the, left places where they maybe didn't feel any more personals and they decided to make down things. And they made the new model for a mixture of experts that this new Gemini model that's multimodal for people that don't know what is multimodal overall, it's when you can put the image and the text and it works same time, you know? Because normally that's not the way models should work because they usually learn in something fun, how to work with text and how to mimic your text and your speech. Um, so I think those models, again, for me, main use cases, sadly, I see today is just to mimic human, which is okay. But do you really need to pay or do you, 
environmentally speaking, do you need a model for 500 plus billion parameters to mimic yourself, right? Hmm. So I think it will come. I really believe those models will go smaller and smaller. Also, fine tuning is getting cheaper and cheaper and pre-training as well. It doesn't cost anymore what it used to cost. A lot of companies today that say, I don't know, you're a marketing company and you want to help your customers make better marketing campaigns, but speaking just for your, you know, your customer. Say, I don't know, you're a luxury company. You cannot use the same model as the company that sells, I don't know, like day-to-day sport clothes. It just makes zero sense. Your audience is different. You know, people speak different language. So the model, if you use one model for both of them, probably you would have something average. But if you would have a particular model for them separately, that's where you may see actually results. And again, I think it's debating. You know, some people would say, hey, fine-tuning doesn't really work. So I think you really need to understand how to fine-tune and what do you want to fine-tune because we Mm -hmm. saw great improvement. And the next step is that you don't always have to fine-tune a GPT-4 model style. You know, you can actually have a lot of tiny models that would cover for it. So for me, I think I'm really looking forward to improvement around orchestration, uh, Llama Index, Langchain, other companies, also for evaluating models. I think um, something we didn't touch, but this is actually coming very uh, complicated with Gen AI, how to interpret or how to, you know, control them, how to evaluate them. I think in general, it's missing. There are some companies and some open source projects that's been in general evaluating models, you know, like deep learning models or classical ML, but we didn't really move forward. And I think it's been like, since I start working on a market, nothing almost changed for being very frank. For Mm -hmm. six years, no progress because people are okay with what they have, but no one tries to, you know, figure out something better for this. So I really hope it will get better. Who knows who will come up with what, but recently there was this new publication about Purple Llama, the new basically frameworks that helps you to control your models, you know, to verify them, how to be sure a model, like you cannot kind of hack a prompt uh, model. Because I think, you know, when I talk to some people, they're like, oh yeah, we will use whatever is simpler. Yeah, it will work for probably like a few weeks or or maybe a few months. But once someone make a hack of your prompt and they go and judge your company on an international scale, this will stop working. And I think this is where we are not yet. Because, and you know, it just been like, what, a few days ago, the new European AI Act, right? And this will go forward. So what I'm also looking forward is for this data to represent people, to have less biased data so that companies would really take care of it. And we would actually know what they used for this data, because frankly mm-hmm. speaking, yeah, it's a bit, yeah, you know, warning. And maybe I'm also taking it a bit cautiously because I don't know, you know, which type of data is used. And I'm also a person, right? Even though I work for IT company, but I still a person and I still live. So yeah, it's also something that uh, probably kind of, you know, tickling and like uh, saying like, okay, it's ringing the bell, which data they use. So looking forward also for, you know, kind of some transparency. And of course, the last, not the least, it's environment. How much energy do we spend for using it? Is it worth it? Is it really bringing any value? Can we make it better? Can this GPT run or whatever model you use on some renewable energy or, you know, I think some companies moving great 
towards, you know, reusing plastic, reusing paper, using alternative energy. And I really hope that it would be accelerated in general. So hmm. that's amazing. You said so many things. I have too many questions. We don't have enough time. <laughs> um, super interesting. You're right. Uh, we could have uh, discussed further the how to evaluate models. Uh, there are this, uh, like you mentioned, it is very cheap nowadays to like fine tune models. Uh, a lot of people are working on these things. A lot of people in the open source community are sharing a ton of things on this. I think that we can fine tune some models for around like with like resources in the cloud. Um, like for a hundred dollars, we can start fine tuning models and so on. Uh, so that's awesome. Um, you mentioned evaluation. Uh, I feel that the main go-to right now, correct me, is um, comparing it to the strongest model. So maybe GPT-4 yeah, right the now. Yeah, judge, the judge model. That's basically what... So at Databricks, we actually made a research. So it's been like some people from field and engineering team. And there's also a lot of research. So of course, we based ourselves on something. Hmm. So I think so far, why I... So the way I'm using it and the way I see it is that you cannot evaluate everything yourself because it's really a burden, you know, and it's like physically complicated. And this model, as they actually train to mimic the language, mimic what you would think by reading the text, mm. they are actually good in re-evaluating if you give them a task. So if you mm. tell to the model, this is like sort of the tasks I want you to evaluate this text on, I really mm. think this is smart and it's, like really working, but you just need to give a task properly. Hmm. So I think I will move forward. Like we're just like at the beginning. I don't remember yeah. who said it. Probably it was Andre Karpati, who is uh, the the creator. And um, the I think he said that for him, we are like at the beginning of computers just after calculators, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. And I really believe it, I hope. Because if you look actually at the past, I remember at the past, deep learning was super hyped and then, you know, it died. Actually, something that I learned a lot when I joined Databricks, there is this company called Gartner and they have this cycle. Yeah. So, and they basically project when they're going to be peak, when they're going to be a throw, and then, you know, when it's going to stabilize. So let's see what it goes. I don't know if we are on a peak or we move into the peak, but probably the greatest achievements will happen after we drop. Because that's usually when everything, when people really start, you know, thinking what they're doing, and then we probably, hopefully will go to plateau or maybe there will be, you know, especially for multimodal models. Look, I don't know, let's see, but I'm really looking forward to it. You know, I just wanted to share, for example, what we did at Databricks and the way, for example, Databricks help us to accelerate. So we have this stuff that basically it's a bit like a chatbot that learned from all of our internal data. So it's a Confluence, Jira, Slack and everything and also mm -hmm. docs that we have. And then you can just type, you know, keyword search and basically it would bring you more documents. And now we're actually introducing a general model that even could summarize you certain of them. So the thing is that Databricks, they actually have hell of documentation. And I know people may not realize it, but I used to spend hours to go look through the list of presentation and documents that I had. And just when they bring us this, you know, simple tool that would pick me them like everything that matched my keyword search, it literally saved me probably at least 30 to 40% of my work time. Then we moving forward, for example, we also 
creating a bot where you could type also some products of Databricks and it would actually bring you all the blogs, all the videos and everything that's been mentioning this with also exact minute for the cut because we also analyze the description. And then it would kind of combine you it in an email so that the sales team could sell it, could send mm -hmm. it back, you know, mm -hmm. or even myself, you know, when I talk to customers, they ask for links and, you know, usually it's a manual search. Just go back and look for all of these mm -hmm. blog posts. So this is something even we bring into our company, right? And you've been bringing it for a very long time. So those simple use cases can really accelerate, you know, your company for like, sorry, 40%. So I just really hope that this technology would really help, you know, to make our life better. Because mm. I know some people, I fear, they, they have fear that this may replace them, right? So I honestly don't see right now that it's kind of really replacing people. I mm -hmm. see that it's actually helping and accelerating your work. And finally, you could actually remove some not really, let's say, let's say tasks that you're not supposed to do at all and yeah. do something better, you know, like just yeah. focus on a real job rather than like doing repetitive tasks. So for me, I see it as acceleration and I really hope that all companies will focus on it as acceleration instead of replacing people, because I don't really see it replacing people. If someone sees it, happy to talk with them and debate, but that's at least my vision. Maybe I'm too over positive, but I don't think that it's possible today to replace human just the way we are, you know? Hmm. Awesome. I love it. Um, yeah. I would have many questions. We could go into agents, swarm agents. Um, those are very interesting. Um, I really like how you've like put it in, in perspective. What I really like particularly is that, yes, we're going to be able to do amazing things. As of now, I believe that the main value that these tools um, gives are around summarization and retrieval and combining these two these two tool with automation which already existed but now we can automate things on a higher level maybe so uh very interesting i'm sure there are more but this is what i have in mind yeah um i think a use case that i like to give you know you said summarization and retrieval mm -hmm. think of uh you have legal team they have a lot of documents and they just want to find all the documents they ask a question show me all the documents with a contract with Databricks that end in March. Yeah. But if you think of it, how do you do it, right? Is it a mm. chatbot? Is it a retrieval Q&A? What is it? Yeah. Mm. So very classical use case. And I think for this one, we had a lot of, or another one, say you're a company and you really care what are inside some products that produced in different countries, your international company. And you just want some people go make photos and the application would automatically scan and say, you know, if it's good product or not. Yeah. Or maybe even tell you, oh, by the way, this is like above the norm and stuff like this. So it's existed, but it used different technology. Mm -hmm. So it, didn't, it doesn't mean it didn't exist. It may exist, but it may be done manually, you know, or like not mm -hmm. in a very efficient way and you may to take, may to wait hours. So I think where I really see it and I really hope we will be there is that these transformers, Okay, not like Gen AI, but Transformers uh, algorithm could help us to see data with new patterns or identify new patterns, you know, not just in, in text, but yeah. in anything, you know, maybe in some patterns for medical studies, you know, patterns maybe of creating music, of uh, mixing colors, you know, time series. 
yeah. general, the technology is very interesting. So let's see how it evolves. But it really, I mean, it seems that it looks for proper patterns. So I think we should just work further to explore more domains, you know. Yeah. And yeah, probably GPT style things would be everywhere. We just would use the technology under the hood that are transformers and they will be different. And it would just be applied to maybe even soon to classical ML. Let's see. Who knows? Mm -hmm. I also believe that. Uh, awesome. Well, I've had, uh, I have two more questions and I had a, an amazing time. Those are like two uh, closing questions uh, that are about yourself. But uh, uh, before, thanks a lot for coming on the show and sharing. I learned a ton. Um, so I want to thank you for that. Um, the first one is where can people learn more about uh, you and what you do? Is it on LinkedIn? Do you have a website? Like what do you have going on? Yeah. So I'm probably not a very public person, even though well, maybe it's a good time to become. So yeah, I have a LinkedIn. So follow me on LinkedIn. You can always write me. I'm pretty friendly. Also, as working at Databricks, we're running a lot of public events. Like we're running Lake House Day as a base yeah. in France. Mainly it's in France, but sometimes in travel to other countries. So pass by. They're all free. Uh, just register, follow up, uh, pass by, say hi, ask your questions. We are always open and friendly. And we also have a small... YouTube channel where we posted mainly a few videos. They are mainly on CICD because I've really had a feeling people struggle to do CICD. <laughs> so we posted some, but yeah, just subscribe on LinkedIn and uh, let me know if uh, you think you want to hear something more about. So I may, I don't know, may think of it and make more content. <laughs> awesome. And last question, would you have a message for the Let's Talk AI community? It can be anything that we discussed in this episode or something totally new, personally, professionally, whatever you want. Yeah. So I think my message would be, you know, don't be afraid. Uh, accept the challenge and move to your to your goals because if you, you know, if you put your hands down, nothing will change. And I think for me, this definitely worked. And trust me, I had upsides and downs uh, a lot in my career past. But it's all turned out being super cool. I'm super excited talking to Thomas today and uh, you could also do it. So just, yeah, keep moving and yeah, enjoy uh, using AI. <laughs> awesome. I wish you to have a wonderful day. Yeah, you too. Congrats, you've made it to the end. I hope you had a great time and that you learned a few things. To learn more about AI, you can subscribe to my newsletter or check the blog. And to support the podcast, you can give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also share it with two friends, colleagues or family members that might be interested. I wish you to have a wonderful day. Bye.